I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, now, on this Resurrection Sunday, we pause and we give attention to your word. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would give us eyes to see. And Lord, I pray this morning, if there's, if there's someone here who... Uh, what Paul says of the Corinthians is not yet true of them, that they have not yet received, believed, that they don't have a knowledge of the salvation that you provide for them through their son, through your son, Jesus. Father, we would ask that today would be the day of salvation. For we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been making our way through the book of Colossians, we've learned a little bit of geography and a little bit of census data related to the ancient world. We know that Colossae was an insignificant little town. It wasn't a has-been town, it was a never-been little hamlet. Well, this morning, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we move from Colossians into the book of 1 Corinthians, and we turn our attention to the 15th chapter of that letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and it's a chapter that deals entirely with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very thing that we've gathered this morning to remember and to celebrate. Now, the difference between Colossae and Corinth is the difference between Matthews, Indiana, and New York City. If you've never heard of Matthews, Indiana, don't worry. Most folks haven't. Even people who live in Indiana have never heard of Matthews, Indiana. But many of us, if not all of us, have heard of New York City. Now, in the ancient world, Rome was the capital of the empire. Athens was the seat of learning. It was the, the university town of the ancient world. Corinth, then was the place of commerce and affluence. Corinth was where all the deals were made, and it's where all of the beautiful people lived. There is a reason 
that the late Ricardo Monteblon tried to entice us to buy a piece of garbage 1980 Chrysler Cordoba that boasted, and I quote, rich Corinthian leather. Even in our day and age, Corinth or Corinthian is synonymous with quality and a kind of exotic chic. It is in this most cosmopolitan of environments then that Paul argues not for a philosophical system. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's not arguing an idea. He's not arguing a concept. Rather, the Apostle Paul is telling us about the factualness of an event. He's reminding us that there is an important thing that happened, and it's true. He's reminding us that this particular event transpired in recent history for Paul and his readers. In fact, it's so recent that some folks who were there, who were themselves eyewitnesses of this, could still be found. Paul wants us to understand that this singular event changes everything we know, not just about this life, but also about the life that is to come. He's also going to make it clear that if we get this wrong, the consequences of getting it wrong are absolutely catastrophic. Now on page five in your bulletin and on the screen in front of you, you see an outline for our time together this morning. Uh, that lets you know an hour from now roughly where we are in the process. Uh, I'm joking. It won't be an hour. It'll be two. Uh, you'll be fine. It'll, it'll be all right. Uh, it'll let you know where we are, where we're progressing in the text. And then there's something there called the big idea. And the big idea in one sentence is what the sermon is about. So here's the big idea for this morning. The death, burial, Resurrection and appearance of Jesus changes everything. The death, burial, resurrection, and appearance of Jesus changes everything. Three points we want to make this morning. First, uh, we want to, as the, as the Corinthians did, remember what's at stake. Paul begins 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with these words. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters... He's not telling them something new. Rather, he's reiterating, he's reminding them of something that they already know, something that he's already told them. And in the book of Acts, chapter 18, we learn about how the church in Corinth, by God's grace and through the work of the Spirit, came to be. The Apostle Paul went to Corinth and began by reasoning in the synagogue. Paul, after all, was a Jew. And going to the synagogue and saying, hey, the Old Testament scriptures have been fulfilled and they've been fulfilled in this guy named Jesus. And this guy named Jesus is actually the Messiah that we've been waiting for. So Paul would go to the synagogue and taking the Old Testament as his text to preach from would proclaim to them the gospel. He would let them know that all the promises made by God in the Old Testament were fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a, a pattern, usually then in the book of Acts. Paul would go to the synagogue. He would open up the Old Testament. He would preach Jesus. And then they would show him the left foot of fellowship. They would ask him to leave. 
more likely they would throw him out. And sure enough, in Corinth, the same thing happened. Paul was uh, physically escorted from the grounds, but an amazing thing happened. Uh, one of the men who heard him that day actually owned a house right next door to the synagogue. He became a follower of Jesus, as did the leader of the synagogue. So right next door to where the synagogue was for a year and a half, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel. And the church in Corinth had its birth and had its root, its foundation, in that year and a half of ministry that Paul spent among those people. And so he says to them, listen, I'm reminding you of the gospel that I preached to you, literally the gospel that I gospeled to you, and you received it. You heard it. You understood it. You didn't turn away from it. But in the past, the gospel came to you, and instead of rejecting it, you received it. Now, he goes on to remind them that not only did this thing happen in the past, that they received the gospel, but he tells them at the very end of verse 1 that it's this gospel in which they stand. It's the gospel that undergirds them. Their present well-being is tied to this thing that happened in the past. They have received the gospel. They have received the good news. And that thing that they received in the past is the thing in which they stand even now. I grew up in a tradition, as maybe did some of you, that said, well, uh, the gospel's good as a starting place. But then there's a whole bunch of other stuff, and it can get kind of weird because it usually involves the Holy Spirit and some kind of uh, second baptism of the Spirit. And there's this thing called the deeper Christian life. And you got to kind of figure that out. And, and it, it can get a little wonky. It can get a little weird. And it feels a little like it can feel a little secret handshaky at times. And Paul here says to the Corinthians, and he says to us, listen, friend, you never get over the gospel. There's never a time in which the finished and completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ is not the bedrock on which you stand. Our hope this morning, the thing on which we stand, is the fact that 2,000 years ago, three really brave women went to the tomb. And you know what they found? Nothing. It was empty. As we sang this morning, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And Paul says, not only did you receive this in the past, and not only is this the bedrock on which you stand right now, but in verses 2 and 3, he reminds them that this is their future. He says, and by which you are being saved. And that's an interesting verb. It doesn't translate very well in English, but in Greek it means this. You've been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. So your sins have been forgiven. But guess what? If you're like me, you're a pretty good sinner. So you have sins even now that are going to need to be forgiven. And then guess what? Sinner, at some point, you're going to have to stand before a holy God. We read about that this morning. 
That's part of the passage that Abby read for us, that we're going to be resurrected, and some will be resurrected to life, but some are going to be resurrected into judgment. So there's coming a day in which, even though we have received the gospel, and even though we are currently standing in the gospel, there's coming a day in which we're still going to need to be saved. Because we're going to stand before a holy God, and that holy God is going to say to you and I, hey, sinner, why should I let you into my heaven? I hope you have a good answer. And I hope that answer has nothing to do with you. If the answer is, I was a pretty good person, no, you're not. Your mom loves you. Your spouse may love you. Your children and your grandchildren may love you. But let's not kid ourselves. You need to be saved. We need to remember what the hymn writer said. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It is our past. It is our present. And friends, we will need the future grace of God when we stand before the one who created us the one who is sovereign, the one who will judge and rule and reign. And when he asks us, why should I let you into my heaven? The only answer we could ever possibly give is because Jesus died for me. That's it. Now, this can be a challenging word for us because it's very easy, I think, to merely think of uh, the gospel as something you did in the past. Oh, I believe the gospel. I'm good. Now I can just go on and live my life and it doesn't really matter because I've got this, I've got this gospel thing and I've got it here in my back pocket and when I need it, uh, God's just going to know that it's there. But Paul reminds us that, the, that belief in the gospel is not a one time and then a kind of occasional sort of thing. Rather, he reminds us that that which we have received, namely the gospel, we now stand upon. And what we have received and stand upon, he says, we have to hold fast to. I have a pastor friend who, uh, and he's actually rather bravely written a book about it. A pastor friend who, while he was serving in ministry, uh, was also an addict. And so he writes about uh, what has gone on in his life and he writes about the grace of God. And he says that one of the things that was most helpful to him uh, about going to AA and working the program and admitting the fact that he was who he was is he said it finally made him realize uh, that the gospel is sort of like recovery. We're all recovering sinners. And we all each and every day need to be reminded that we have received the gospel, we are standing upon the gospel, and we have to hold fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul goes on. He doesn't just uh, remind them of what's happened, but he tells them what it is that he delivered to them. 
And scholars understand and they believe that basically verses uh, 4 through 7, or verses 3 through 7, excuse me, is kind of the earliest statement of faith that the church possesses. And the gospel, we've been talking, Paul says, hey, you've received the gospel, you're standing upon the gospel, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be saved in the gospel. Paul now tells us exactly what that gospel consists of. The gospel, as Paul understands it, and as the New Testament presents it to us, consists of these four really basic realities. The first reality, and your bulletin is wrong, I apologize for that, is in verse 3. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We remember that on Friday evening. That Jesus was betrayed. That Jesus was beaten. That he was mocked. That he underwent scorn and shame. And as we sing, scoffing rude. And he was condemned, not because of anything that he had done. But because, as we read in Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53, that Jesus was going to die not for his own sin, but for ours. That he took our place. And so when Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he's saying, hey, listen, the Old Testament, namely the book of Isaiah said, that God was going to send his servant to die in our place. That he was going to suffer, not because he had sinned, but he was going to suffer for the sins of his people. And not only was he going to suffer, but he was going to die. Not kind of die, not pass out, but that he would actually be D-E-E-D, dead. That's what was going to happen. Jesus would die. And we know that he was dead because in verse 4 we're told that he was buried. And again, we read on Friday night from Psalm 122 that reminded us that Jesus then was buried in a borrowed tomb. A tomb that belonged to a rich man. But we're celebrating this morning. Not the fact that he died, not the fact that he was buried, but this morning we've gathered to celebrate the fact that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, if that weren't enough, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, then appears, Paul tells us. And starting in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas or Peter. And then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Now, it's the sheer physicality of all of this that would have been offensive to the Corinthian mind. See, in, in Greece, and particularly among the beautiful people in Corinth, they had this particular idea that matter, anything you could touch or taste or smell, anything you could feel, matter was evil. Okay, maybe some matter, it wasn't entirely evil, but it was at the very least flawed and very, very messy. And all that Paul has just said, Jesus 
dying, Jesus being buried, Jesus being raised, and Jesus appearing. Friends, it's all just sort of, um, it's all physical. You can touch it. In fact, you may recall that when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, the disciple named Thomas, who we now know as Doubting Thomas, when he hears from his brothers and disciples uh, that, hey, the Lord has been resurrected, do you remember what Thomas says? Not only do I need to see this with my own eyes, I need to put my fingers where the nails were. And when Jesus appears, he looks at Thomas and he says, hey, you still need to touch it? Here are my hands. Here are my side. Now, Thomas, do you believe? So in the Greek world, it would have been much more agreeable and much more marketable to say, hey, this whole thing about Jesus dying and being buried and resurrected, well, we don't mean it literally. No, when we say that Jesus uh, was resurrected, we mean that he lives on in our hearts and in our minds. That there's always a part of Jesus that's going to walk around with us. We turn the reality into an allegory. It's a story. It's a comforting story. Or we stand back and we scoff at the utter absurdity of it. Hey, uh, Paul, again, this is this is so physical and it's so messy and and it like you can smell it and you can touch it and uh, uh. why would you think such a thing is possible, let alone desirable? Like there has to be a better, more marketable, cleaner, more user-friendly way to talk about the redemption of the world. Paul, this, this statement, is, it's so physical. It's so tactile. It's so just real. One of my heroes growing up in the faith was a man named Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a Marine and later on a Harvard-trained attorney who then went to work in the Richard Nixon White House. Colson was then one of 12 men who were in the room when that great scandal that we know as Watergate was concocted and carried out. Colson was one of, uh, I think, either two or three men who were actually convicted for their part in the Watergate scandal. He spent time in prison. While he was in prison, Chuck Colson came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so writing after this, he's talking about the reality of the resurrection. And he takes dead aim at the people who would say, no, the resurrection is either, listen, it's, it's either allegory or it's completely absurd. Listen to the words of Colson. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. 
Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. They didn't even have to tell the truth. They just needed to not talk. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years. He concludes by saying this. That is absolutely impossible. Friends, Paul gives us this beautiful statement of the gospel and he wants us to understand it's a fact. He wants us to understand that it's true. Now, he's going to go on to prove the reality of the death, burial, resurrection, and appearance of Jesus by what is known as the irrefutable argument. And the irrefutable argument can be condensed like this. The irrefutable argument is simply look at a person's changed life and you'll know about the truthfulness of it. Look at the person's changed life and you'll know the truthfulness of the claims that they're making. In verse 8, Paul now lists himself as a witness to the resurrected Jesus. Again, the book of Acts tells us how the Apostle Paul was headed on the road to Damascus and he was going to persecute the church. He was hunting down Christians and imprisoning them. And yet, as he was on the road to go carry out this horrible task, the resurrected Christ appeared to him, blinded him, and called him to himself. Now, you can imagine the naysayers to Paul's account uh, sort of pushing back with something like this. Well, yeah, okay, Paul, great. We know what you think you saw on the road to Damascus. But Paul, listen, it was hot out. We know you were bald. It's easy for bald guys to get sunstroke. You'd been working really hard. I mean, think about all the Christians that you had been imprisoning. Dude, you were like, you were burning the candle at both ends. Then you're out without a hat on. It's hot outside. Paul, nobody else heard the voice that was speaking to you. Now they saw a bright light and they heard some thunder. But Paul, maybe you really didn't see what you thought you saw. And Paul says, hey, wait a minute. If it was just an illusion, then explain to me how it is that the one who once persecuted the church is now powerfully proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, uh, by the way, it's not because I'm some sort of great human being. Did you notice that in verse 10 and then again in verse, uh, actually twice in verse 10, he mentions the fact that it's the grace of God operating and working in his life. So I wonder this morning, what about your life? Is the reality of the power of Christ's resurrection evident in the way you live? Friends, the good news here this morning is this. If the guy who once hunted down Christians can then turn around and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, that no matter what's going on in your life, the grace of God is more than sufficient for it. 
How about the way you talk? Is the power of the resurrection evident, present in the way you speak? What about the things that you love? In Sunday school, we've been reading a wonderful book by Michael Horton that reminds us it's not just the things we love that can betray us. It's also the things that we fear. Do your fears speak to the reality of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It would be wonderful this morning, wouldn't it? If you could turn to YouTube and have some sort of actual video footage of the empty tomb. It would be great if there was some sort of thing that we could touch or taste or smell. If there was some way that other than just through our ears, we could get some sense, some declaration that all of this is true. Well, friends, in front of us this morning, in a very unlikely way, God is declaring to us the truth of the resurrection. See, we have to use bread and wine because the body of Jesus is not available. He has been resurrected. He is ascended. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so God this morning gives us this tangible gift to remind us that the gospel is true. He gives us this tangible meal to strengthen us, to encourage us and to help us along the way as we seek to make the power of the resurrection a reality in the way in which we live and talk, the things that we love and the things that we fear. And the sacraments as a whole are most fundamentally a powerful declaration that God makes to us that He is our God and we are His people. So friends, this morning, if you, like Paul has said, if you have received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're going to invite you in a few minutes to come and to taste and to see that the Lord is good. We're going to invite you this morning to come and to partake in this glorious declaration of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you this morning for your grace and mercy to us. The Word tells us that you resurrected your Son in power. And so we know that just as Jesus trusted you, we can trust you also. That just as the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected in power, so too we know you will resurrect your people in power. We, we read about it this morning. And Father, we pray now as we come to the table, as we come to this wonderful gift that you have given us, that we would be strengthened for the living of these days. Father, uh, the idea that, that the resurrection of Jesus is either allegory or it's just absurd, that wasn't just true in Paul's day. It's true in our day as well. So Lord, we would ask that by your grace, 
and by the power of your spirit, we would, we too would live lives that bear evidence and testimony to the reality of the resurrection. Use the meal now to strengthen us to that end. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.